Well, just before the service today, uh, Father Charlie and I were talking about how Pentecost uh, has so many different emphases. He said that when he was a younger priest, um, notice I said younger, Father. When he, was, when he was a younger priest, they used to sing happy birthday to the church. And uh, that is a very good thing to do um, because Pentecost, in a sense, is the birth of the New Testament church. Um, there's all sorts of themes going on in Pentecost. It's, it's a preacher's paradise. But also it's difficult because there's so much to say and so little time. So, happy birthday to the church. And we also celebrate the fulfillment of God's prophecy in Joel. I don't know if you caught it or not, but the texts themselves show that fulfillment of prophecy from Joel chapter 2. If you have your bulletin, it's the acclamation for Pentecost on the very first page um, where the Lord Joel prophesies through the Lord, and then it's fulfilled in Acts chapter 2. The Lord will pour out His Spirit upon all flesh, and your sons and daughters shall prophesy. And it goes on, of course. But the main point here is the Holy Spirit is poured out on all flesh. And last week, or last year, we focused on the sevenfold gifts of the Spirit. We're not going to do that this year. This year, we're going to focus on that third person of the Trinity making a new people. You see, there's a promise in the Scriptures where God talks about making a people, and we see in the Old Testament passage today from Genesis that the peoples of the earth are dispersed because what do they do with all of their effort? What do they do with their common language? They start to build the Tower of Babel, a glory unto themselves. And of course, sin taints that, and so God dispels them, disperses them rather, sending them to other corners of the earth and giving them languages so that they cannot communicate and cannot further their sin. But we see the opposite of that on Pentecost Day, after Jesus has ascended into heaven, we see that language is not a barrier for the new people, for the kingdom of God. Look, if you will, with me at that gift of the Holy Spirit. And you'll recall how last week our Lord Jesus Christ ascended into heaven promising this gift of the Holy Spirit. So this is not in your sermon uh, is in your bulletin text, this is the, the passage before the one that Father Joshua read to us this morning, where Jesus says, and while, or where we read, rather, and while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me. For John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit. Not many days from now, Jesus says, before ascending. And so it's interesting that Jesus orders them to wait. To wait for the Holy Spirit. Why? He's ascended into heaven. Why aren't they just to go out and start the church? Right? So often, we as Christians are tempted to do this too. I'm going to do it in my own power, do it in my own right. But Jesus says, wait. And He doesn't just say it, He orders it. 
The answer is in John chapter 15, verse 5, where Jesus is with the disciples and He says to them, I am the vine and you are the branches. Whoever abides in Me and I in him, he it is that bears much fruit. And here's the key takeaway phrase, for apart from Me, you can do nothing. For apart from Me, you can do nothing. Jesus is speaking spiritually here, although it's also true that without Jesus, indeed, there is no existence itself. So this is an absolute fact, not just a spiritual one, but without Jesus, there would be no creation, first of all, but for those of us created in God's image, without Jesus, without the Holy Spirit, the Spirit of our Lord, we can do nothing. Bishop J.C. Ryle, the one-time Bishop of Liverpool in England, who was prolific in his writings and sermons, makes a point here that can't be overemphasized. He says, the union between the branch of the vine and the main stem is the closest thing that can be conceived. It's the whole secret to the branch's life. Strength, vigor, beauty, and fertility. Separate the parent stem and it has no life of its own. Now, I made a mistake this week. I was trimming my... uh, I have a beautiful honeysuckle... Um, plant that, that grows on the trellis across my driveway. I have it there because the hummingbirds love to come uh, and it's just beautiful in and of itself. But when I was trimming, I wasn't careful and I trimmed one of the stems that caused a bunch of branches to die. Now, fortunately, honeysuckle grows back quickly, so it'll be fine. But the point here that Bishop Ryle is trying to make is that the life and the vitality in the branches are not their own. They're coming from the stem. And if you sever that stem, if if you're severed from that stem, that life, that beauty, that vigor, that strength, that fertility dies. The flowers don't bloom. And of course, eventually it falls off and is thrown away. As we look at the text today, I want to look at these five qualities that Bishop Ryle outlines in his exegesis. Five qualities that come with being connected to the vine. Number one, life. Life. Number two, strength and vigor. We're combining two there. Strength and vigor. Number three, beauty. And number four, fertility. So life, strength, or vigor, beauty, and fertility. There's four, I guess, if you combine strength and vigor. Let's look at life. We've already touched on this one a bit. Without being connected to Jesus, men and women cannot have life as God intended it. Period. That's a bold statement today. But it's true. Without being connected to Jesus, men and women cannot have life as God intended it for them. Oh, it's true that they have life biologically and are physically alive, and they might even have common grace that's given to all creatures. They might even have a type of spirituality 
insofar as they are endowed with hearts and minds which come from the Lord's creation, and yet they can't flourish in life. There's a part of them that's dead without God. As Genesis tells us, God built men and women to be in relationship with Him, and so Adam's sin destroys men and women without it being restored by God. If you have your Bibles, look at the book of Romans, chapter 5, verse 10 with me, so that you're not taking my word on this. Romans, chapter 5, verse 10. St. Paul writes to the Roman church this. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall be saved by His life. Let me read that again. For if while we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of His Son, much more now that we are reconciled shall we be saved by His life. Notice, that life is a gift. It's His to give to us and ours to receive. When a person's baptized and then converted, the first thing that happens is the Holy Spirit restores and reconciles that relationship with us, between us and God. But then He continues to pour life into us. Christians call that pouring in of the Holy Spirit, we have a word for that, it's called grace. Grace. It's activating grace. It, it, it brings to life things in us that were hitherto dead, that without which we can't have as part of our own lives. So it's important to understand that because of this, a Christian, even a baptized baby, potentially has more ability to understand and do things in the kingdom of God than someone outside of the church, a grown adult even. All we have to do to see this is to look at today's Scripture when we look at St. Peter the Apostle. Again, in the passage that Father Joshua read to us outside, so it's on the inside of your bulletin here on page 2, Acts chapter 2. Look at verse 14. But Peter, standing with the eleven, lifted up his voice and addressed them, Men of Judah and all who dwell in Jerusalem, let this be known to you and give ear to my words. Now we're going to stop there before we get into any substance. Is this the St. Peter who denies Jesus three times? Who's cowering in the courtyard, afraid to even be associated with Jesus? No. This is a different man. This is a man who's been brought alive by the Holy Spirit. How do we know that? Well, it's earlier in the passage, right? What has happened to St. Peter? What happens in John chapter 20 that we read a few weeks ago? And what happens here in Acts chapter 2? If you go back, you'll see it in verses 1 through 4. When the day of Pentecost arrived, they were all together in one place, and suddenly there came from heaven a sound like a mighty rushing wind, and it filled the entire house where they were sitting. And divided tongues as a fire appeared to them and rested on each one of them. 
And they were filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other tongues as the Spirit gave them utterance. Like the sound of a rushing wind, the divided tongues of fire over their heads, those are images of them being filled with the Holy Spirit. And He gives them new life. He changes who they are. They now have that life abundant. And out of that abundance of life comes what? The next point. Strength. Vigor. It's out of strength and vigor. That co- it's, it's out of that life that comes the strength and vigor. There's a holy boldness that St. Peter has here in Acts chapter 2 that he didn't have before. We see that with new Christians sometimes, don't we? When we see new Christians, and, and it's not just excitement, it's not just emotionalism, it is the flipping of a switch has gone on on them because the Holy Spirit has touched their hearts and now all of a sudden they have new life, new strength, new vigor. The Holy Spirit comes and brings real power. Jesus says as much in today's Gospel. Look at John chapter 14, verse 12 on the back of your Scripture insert. Truly, truly, Jesus says, whoever believes in Me will also do the works that I do, and greater works than these will He do, because I am going to the Father. How are the apostles going to do greater things than Jesus? Well, this greatness is not in miraculous spectacle. Although they certainly match Jesus, we see amazing things go on in the book of Acts. But the power of the Holy Spirit to give them greatness is the impact that they have on the world. We see in the beginning of this greatness in Acts chapter 2 that we were just reading. And what's going on there? The Gospel goes forth to all nations. Did you catch that? I know Father Joshua did. I, 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 uh, I was kind of cruel to him. I didn't tell him he was reading this passage till this morning. Sorry, Father Joshua. But even I struggle with this too. Uh, All those names, the Parthians, the Medes, the Elamites, the Cappadocians, to all nations, the Gospel is sent on the day of Pentecost. Do you know in 2015, according to the Pew Research Foundation, there was an estimate of 2.18 billion Christians in the world's population of 7.3 billion. 2.18 billion Christians... That's 31% of the world's population. What greater work is is there than this? That from 12 people comes 2.1 billion in so many different places of the earth. The Holy Spirit through the apostles has created a great people. He has made a people of life, strength, and vigor. The church is that creation. And it's beautiful. And it's fertile. What the Holy Spirit creates is beautiful and fertile. Beauty is something that's often overlooked as impractical and scorned in our world, but it's really important, isn't it? The Holy Spirit brings about a beautiful creation in the church and in the individual. Beauty is an essential part of our lives. From the very beginning, the Holy Spirit inspired with beauty. Why would God give the manifestation of tongues of fire above 
the apostles as a mantle to them? Why would he do that? Why would he do that? There's no practical reason for that. It's not like, you know, they were cooking hot dogs over it or something. Right? No. It's an act of beauty. It's a mark upon them to inspire, to confirm. In his prophecy, Isaiah speaks about this. This is chapter 61, verse 3. There's so many good things in Isaiah 61, but I want to focus in on this. God, through Isaiah, speaks of a future glory for His people and a future beauty. One of the things that He has to say is this, and you don't have this in front of you, so I'll read it to you. Isaiah 61, starting with verse 3. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me to give them a beautiful headdress instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of a faint spirit, that they may be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord, that He may be glorified. That's about you. That's about me. That's about the church, that we might be oaks of righteousness planted by the Lord for His glory. And He's given us that beautiful headdress, that oil of gladness, that garment of praise. Jesus quotes the earlier part of Isaiah 61 in the Gospel of Luke chapter 4, but the flaming tongues come as a beautiful sign of a new headdress, a new anointing of the Holy Spirit. Do you know this is the reason that bishops wear that funny pointy hat? The mitre? It's supposed to show that tongue of fire. It's supposed to show the connection back to Acts chapter 2. It's why he wears the red one typically when he confirms. To show us that this is a continuation of the people that God has put together by His Holy Spirit. It would be really cool if, if we actually saw the you know, actual flames, but... That seems to be reserved for the apostles. As Christians in the Anglican tradition, we believe that beauty is connected directly to truth and goodness, don't we? The arts are inspired. Or at least they can be. And should be. Famous Anglican theologian Richard Hooker writes that love's object is beauty. That the theological virtue of love's object is to worship God in beauty. He writes, concerning charity, that is love, the final object whereof is that incomprehensible beauty which shineth in the countenance of Christ, the Son of the living God. To worship God in beauty is an important part of who we are. Thus, the Holy Spirit inspires art in the church and in the individual Christian. It's not sidelined. It's not just a distraction. It's an important part of who we are. And finally, fertility. It's strange to think about this, but the Holy Spirit's power is what makes the church fertile. He who overshadowed St. Mary the Virgin after the Annunciation brings, that brings forth Jesus Christ Himself is also He who creates new believers. Fertility. He who brings forth Jesus Christ 
as the incarnate Word also makes new believers. I want to be really clear here. Jesus, the second person of the Trinity, is eternal. He comes from the beginning, right? The Word is eternal. But His being brought into our presence in the incarnation is a work of the Holy Spirit, a work of the Godhead. And so is every believer who comes into God's kingdom, a work of the Godhead. The Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit bringing that fertility. Children of God have continued from generation to generation for some 2,000 years. But there's an old saying that's really profound, and that is that God has no grandchildren. Have you heard that saying? God has no grandchildren. That means that every person of every generation has to be brought into saving relationship with God by the Holy Spirit. You don't inherit it. You can inherit lots of good things from being in a Christian family, but one thing you cannot inherit is salvation. It's something brought about by God Himself. And He continues to do so, thank God. He continues to pour life strength and vigor, beauty and fertility into His church and into her children. So finally, I want to look in conclusion at 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Look at chapter 12, verses 4 through 7. Now there are a variety of gifts, but the same Spirit, writes St. Paul to the Corinthians. And there are varieties of service, but the same Lord. And there are varieties of activities, but the same God who empowers them all in everyone. And this is the verse that I want you to underline if you're an underliner. But commit it to your mind, to your memory. Verse 7, To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. To each is given the manifestation of the Spirit for the common good. What's St. Paul saying? That it's God, the Holy Spirit, that empowers and gives gifts for the building up of the church. Not so that you can have it and say, I am the great healer, or I am the great prayer, or I am the great evangelist. But so you can uplift the common good, the church, as a member of it as a member of it, bringing God to those around you. It's for a purpose. It's a promise to you, but it's for a purpose. So consider, what are your gifts? What's the Holy Spirit doing in you? He's not just helping you to be more holy, although that's really important, but He's also pouring things into you for the service of the body here at St. Anselm, if you're part of this congregation, or in your own church family, wherever that is, in your fellowship communities, in your families, the Holy Spirit is doing something in you. Try to discern it. Try to see what it is. At least consider it. Because apart from God, we can do nothing. But as vessels of the Holy Spirit's power, together as the church, Jesus promises the very gates of hell cannot prevail. Do we believe that? Do we take that to heart? It's true. 
The promise is nothing less. Go forth knowing that you have the Holy Spirit and that He is doing a good work in you. In the name of the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen.